This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Married PCs. The Nazi Gold Train. Roasted Vegetables. And Cattle Mutilations. It blew up Kickstarter. It slid into Gen Con on a gurney with both guns blazing. And now Feng Shui 2 action movie role-playing is laying down the Kung Fu, the Gun Fu, and the Cybernetic Primate Fu at a retail store near you. In Feng Shui 2, you play a ragtag band of heroes. Inspired by the action movie canon. Especially the high-flying classics of Hong Kong cinema. Designed by me. Need we say more? Of course we didn't. But the gang at Atlas will think it's weird if we don't. Redeem your past misdeeds as a bullet-spraying killer. Heal the world through butt-kicking as the wise Sifu. Blast miscreants with the raw key power as a sorcerer. Channel the power of pure awesomeness as a transformed dragon. Or brain dudes with a parking meter as the big bruiser. 36 character types in all, bursting with furious action. Fight the bad guys who want to control the world. In the history-spanning conflict called the Chi War. Fought in the far past, the near past, a devastated future and now, now, now! For years, the number one question I got at cons was, when are you updating Feng Shui? Tons of people tell you the original changed the way they GM'd everything. And they're right, because they're experts on their own gaming experience. Well, now in a golden comeback for all time, Feng Shui has been updated, improved, streamlined... And clocks in at... 354 pages of gorgeously illustrated eye-smacking color. If your key powers can't stop a bullet, this stunning hardback can. You know it if you back the Kickstarter. But maybe you bought the PDF only in order to support your local game store. Or like a full metal nutball neglected to grab the stunning GM screen. So now's the time to formulate a crazy plan that just might work. And contact your game retailer of choice. Reserving your copy of Feng Shui 2. That badass GM screen. And blowing up the movies, Robin's standalone book of essays on the action movie classics. Taking you inside the workings of 24 action movies. From the stone-cold classic to the unjustifiably obscure. Each essay shows you how the film delivers. And the lessons you can extract from it to enhance your own efforts as GM or player. So that's Feng Shui 2 in all its full-color glory. The GM screen and its likewise fetching utility. And blowing up the movies in all of its fun and dare I say it. You do dare, Robin. You do. Incisiveness. Now in retail. Go forth, dragons. Blow things up and... Save the world. Before we head into the meat of this episode, uh, listeners at home, we have to put on the cones of shame and head into the embarrassment hut, because it turns out that the ads that we've been running for several weeks now are somewhat confusing, uh, in that Tove Gilbring of Astrovan is not anyone's brother, but perhaps someone's literal or metaphorical sister. So we apologize for mispronouncing your first name and misidentifying you in general. Uh, the folks at Asphageln didn't point that out to us, and I guess they were too nice to say that we were making uh, fools of ourselves. But fools we are. We're wearing the cones of shame here in the Embarrassment Hut. And my cone is especially sumptuous because I have met Tova and <laughs> somehow assumed that uh, our copy had magically been correct anyway. And that it so, was all part of a shtick somewhere. A, a bit that someone was doing, and it yeah. turned out it was a bit that the universe was doing as 
the universe occasionally does. So my personal apologies to my good friends, the Gilbrings, for having hilariously conspired at uh, misrepresenting them in advertisement form, which I suppose of the forms is what you probably kind of expect it being an advertisement. Yeah. The important thing of an ad is not that it m- makes sense, but it's, it's memorable. And, and everyone now will remember that we uh, messed up Teve's name. So uh, once again, apologies and on to the next hut. The rattle of dice, the clump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the chiming of the organ, the gentle susurrus of the minister welcoming people in, and the pop of the champagne tell us we've entered a meritly festive segment of the gaming hut. But what? Who would be so lost to reason as to marry here at the gaming table, that table which is dedicated to all the other profane arts of hanging around? (laughs) And it turns out that apparently in some games, the internal or perhaps the internally forced logic causes player characters to decide someone got to get married and maybe it's us. And what if, I suppose, uh, the question is, What if the social conventions of the world that you've already established require a character to marry, perhaps because you're playing a female character in a historical time period, and if you don't marry, then you maybe lose your property, or you have other sorts of social uh, problems upon you, or you're playing the heir to a to a lineage, and in order to keep being a a fancy aristocrat, you have to get married and produce an heir and a spare, uh, just like the old uh, uh, Windsors have to do, throwing themselves into the breach for the quote-unquote good of the common wheel. Or what if, I suppose, the question is, what if player characters have to marry each other? Is that something that is chancier or less chancy? Because at least you're keeping it all in the family, so to speak. So, Robin, we've, as marriage so often does, cast a light upon the assumptions of our society. What light would you like to color it today? Right. So I'd like to talk about if if you have a campaign uh, that sort of reverses the normal assumption that I think players generally want to have is they, uh, particularly in more tactically oriented role-playing games where they're tackling procedural problems, that uh, in general, people regard uh, relationships, uh, much less marriages, as basically an impediment, as a uh, thing that ties them down and obligates them and that they uh, don't want to be involved in. And there's uh, generally a fantasy of freedom that we associate uh, not just with the uh, F20 games, that's D&D and all of its various uh, aesthetic and uh, literal descendants, uh, but also adventure in general. We don't think of the, uh, as heroes of, as being married in one uh, sense. Often you have uh, romantic plot lines that are resolved at the end of a story, but uh, the idea of an ongoing uh, marriage is something that you don't see a lot, and I think then would be interesting, at least as a thought experiment, to contemplate what happens if the premise of the campaign is that all of the characters have to be married, and that you know the the rule is when you introduce this to the players, and you know you have to get a group of players who would be game for this, is say your character doesn't have to be in love, but they do have to be married because uh, social convention suggests that. And you already sort of indicated one setup in which that would be true, and that's if you're uh, playing an actual realistic historical society, because of course one of the big differences between F20 worlds, for example, and medieval Europe is that in uh, medieval Europe, marriage was an incredibly important institution. And in your average 
uh, run of an F20 game, you might not even mention the word marriage. So um, are there other uh, premises that you think that we could possibly examine that would uh, require uh, all of the players to uh, have their characters uh, married either to each other or to non-player characters? I guess there's the world of the lobster, the Yorgos Lanthimos uh, film that we talked about last week in which uh, in this weird absurdist world you have 45 days to find a new partner whenever you find yourself single or you are turned into an animal. Uh, what other possible setups could we use to uh, justify that the players would have to explore this idea? Um, well, there's the other possible uh, situation where the other or many other possible situations among them that uh, you unify some sort of balance of forces. So uh, you might have to, if you're practicing magic in uh, in a world where there's male magic and female magic, like there is in most traditional uh, African uh, magics in the sub-Sahara, uh, you might think, well, if I'm going to do full on magic, I have to be half of a male female dyad. And, you know, whether you want to get married to a girl or not, uh, you got to get married for the magic to work. Uh, you might have another situation as opposed to, you know, property or social convention. You might have a situation where it's one of the allowed pressures that the GM can put on you, uh, the, the desire of some NPC to marry you uh, because they love you or they covet your, your property or some other aspect is an ongoing threat, and the way to counter that threat is to marry a different NPC, one who is not so obviously predatory as that GM creation that hovers around offering you uh, legally binding contracts to sign, that kind of thing. One general rule about declaring that there is a thing that you need to do in a particular campaign is to make sure that it's not just an edict, an additional restriction placed on players, but something that pays off so that they see... Uh, that they get a benefit from their uh, spouse or their marriage so that that gives them something else that they can draw on. So as you suggest, the ability to uh, have more powerful magic or, in fact, to uh, do magic at all. And, of course, there would be other social benefits as well, so that if you are world-building a society, you might say that whatever the culture is demands that its uh, heroes and leaders demonstrate their social stability by being married, that you uh, don't get to uh, go off on a quest uh, until you have established your personal stability, because otherwise you're just an outlaw who might not come back, so that you don't, uh, you're not given society's resources uh, unless you have already, perhaps even, uh, you might even specify that, you know, you have to uh, have a kid before you can uh, do magic or uh, wield uh, a, a legendary weapon or, or what have you, so that your ability to draw uh, power, either mundane power, money and authority and uh, certain uh, legal responsibilities or uh, the uh, crunchy bits of the game, whether these uh, would be the fantasy things that I mentioned earlier. Or we can also envision a science fiction setting where the demand for a stable society is for whatever reason so great that you... Uh, again, have to demonstrate your adherence to good bourgeois values, including the values of marriage, or even, you know, the values of uh, a marriage that's quite different from the way that we conceive it. So you can have a futuristic world where you have to be part of a three-part marriage in order to uh, be given the rare laser weapons that uh, then allow you to go out onto the post-apocalyptic landscape and start gathering resources. 
for your tribe. But in all of those cases, you see that there is, I suppose, the implicit threat that your character, if somehow they become unmarried in the course of the adventure, uh, you know, has to then find a, uh, a spouse or spouses uh, pretty quickly, but also that you're getting uh, benefits from that. And you could also look at that in terms of if the uh, spouses are non-player characters, they have abilities that they can lend you. And so it might even be a thing where your, uh, you know, your spouses stay home in the uh, fortress, but you can call on them for a magical aid uh, via a distance. So you might be the uh, the guys with the uh, or gals with the relatively, uh, you know, kind of mundane, fighty, sneaky powers, and but you're all married to powerful wizards who, through the uh, link of uh, marital connection, can. Uh, send in the artillery for you when you get into trouble. And another reason to get married might be that if you're planning to produce children because the game has a generational component or your character wants kids for whatever other reason, one hopes not for magical components, that the children should have to have a married parents in order for them to have a decent position in society, which is a pretty common requirement all across human cultures. And so therefore, you w- would need to get married. And that, if you're playing, for example, a, a generational game like Pendragon, you need to start producing heirs or else you're out of the game. So you have to find a in-game bride of some sort. And that is when you start, you know, making decisions. Do I want to role-play this and find a, 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 a beautiful maiden of virtue unreproachable? Or do I want to find a maiden whose castle is on a strategic uh, road and maybe I can charge tolls and be more convenient to dragon slaying that way. Right. And then you can get into the whole question of, you know, what does this society expect from you in terms of fealty to your spouse? Is it acceptable if you have your official spouse and then you have affairs on the side? Or is that a huge scandal if that comes out and therefore something that uh, you want to avoid revealing? Now, again, the question would be as a player, well, why would I get my character into that sort of trouble of being involved in a uh, romantic triangle, as it were. And again, it might be well. There is one kind of magic you uh, can get from uh, being married to a powerful sorcerer, but there's another kind of magic that you can get by uh, dallying temporarily with the hedge wizard or wizardess. And so, or with a succubus. Uh, you're ba- or with a succubus. Or incubus, so to be balanced. gender equality. Yes. I, I think cubus is, is that Is that just a, just a cubus? Uh, gender neutral. <laughs> if if there is cubus. anything less sexy than the word cubus, though, that's <laughs> awful. <laughs> A, a, a yo cubis. It could all be about how you, uh, you know, your relationships all uh, give you power and luck in this uh, in this world. Or, you know, you could dial that back a whole bunch and just make it the fact that you, there are uh, political ties that you need to maintain, as we've been suggesting, um, and or or at least a certain level of respectability that you need in order to participate in the politics of what is uh, going to be largely a political game so that you uh, can't get anything uh, done on the adventure half, which might be more about war and intrigue and espionage, unless you have a high enough position in society. And that depends on your being perceived as a stable adult that uh, the uh, those uh, single people, they're expendable. You can go and, uh, you know, if they get uh, magical powers or, or learn to wield the laser, they get sent out to uh, uh, the most dangerous assignments. That might be the other thing, right, is that uh, you want to be sent out on the fun, dangerous assignments that have a possibility of uh, success, but the single people who demonstrate great competence just get thrown into the meat grinder because they 
you know, aren't seen as, as full citizens. In fact, I guess that could be a, a, a part of it, that you don't have even citizenship in your society until you get married. And so then the uh, challenge going forward is to have a range of interesting relationships that generate plot hooks that the uh, players are actually interested in, in uh, going forward so that you would suggest to them that, first of all, if they're marrying non-player characters, that they get to define who those characters are. It might be more interesting to sort of have the first session all about, you know, this group of people uh, finding their spouses and they get married at the end of the first session and then they can go out and start uh, doing things. But you would allow the players to define who their spouses are and what sort of uh, stories they generate so that the, uh, you know, if you marry the, uh, the man who has the fortress that uh, has the strategic position, that implies that you're going to have a storyline about an invasion in which that strategic position is tested. If you uh, define your spouse as someone who enhances your light side magic with the power of the dark side magic and together you achieve a synthesis that implies a whole set of possible plot hooks about you know what exact dark things is your husband uh, up to when you're off having adventures and are they eventually going to uh, lead him into uh, and and how far can you go how many sessions can you go with something of this premise without drawing on the obvious your spouse gets kidnapped and you have to go rescue them plotline. Well, uh, both Robin and I obviously could sit here and talk about the benefits in and out of game of being married all day, but that would perhaps crowd the open bar wedding reception into other huts. Oh, geez, I, I thought we were doing a cash bar. Yeah, we'd, we'd better get out of here. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of nonstop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for pre-order by you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different Encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, can unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, uh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So, yeah! An 
improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula unredacted that Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available for pre-order at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. It's time once again for Ask Ken and Robin, the segment in which people ask Ken and Robin things and Ken and Robin answer them. In this case, I think probably, what, about 75% of our listeners <laughs> yeah. have, have yeah. asked us to weigh in on yes. this? Well, you know, we don't have exact numbers on this because, of course, late late returns are still coming in from downstate. But, uh, but yeah, um, everyone wants to know about it because... Well, when you hear the question, you will be part of that 75%, I'm sure. Right. And uh, it's a good thing that it's taken us a while to get to that question because the story is still ongoing. In fact, it's so ongoing that by the time this drops 10 days after our recording date, uh, more things could have happened or predictions that we are about to make could turn out to be uh, wrong and we could have to have another embarrassment hut, Ken. Or we could have a sequel hut. A sequel hut. Well, let's hope it's a sequel hut and not an embarrassment hut. So this, of course, is the story of the Nazi gold train in which a uh, two gentlemen named Andreas Richter and uh, Piotr Koper in Poland uh, say that by using ground imaging, they have found an underground tunnel network, an underground t- tunnel network. There is a train, ergo, that underground tunnel network must have been left there uh, by the Nazis uh, because this was uh, annexed as part of uh, this particular part of Poland was annexed as part of Germany during the war. And if there is a tunnel with a train in it, uh, we know that that train must contain not only dangerous booby traps, but also Nazi gold, because why else would there be a train in a tunnel. So can the the whole uh, kind of Nazi gold plot line seems to fuel uh, about what about 30% of all spy thrillers from the 50s and 60s. It sounds like a, you know, how many novels has Alistair MacLean uh, written about uh, Nazi gold trains I wonder. So not enough. Not enough. So so can <laughs> what what do you make of this story? How do we start digging into it? Yes, without Nazi gold, uh, there would be uh, denuded shelves on the on the racks of airport thrillers everywhere. Uh, Clive, poor Clive Cussler would have to stick with Confederate gold and Aztec gold and Roman gold and all the other inferior sorts of gold that there are. All oh, right, it's Clive Cussler, I was thinking. Yeah. And this, and this is well, I'm sure Alistair McLean has Nazi gold lying around. As you, as you mentioned, you couldn't write a thriller without writing about Nazi gold. It was part of the required uh, exercises. The other thing is that this uh, tunnel complex is all tangled up with the, well, it's tangled up with the actual tunnel complex that the Nazis uh, dug out in their slapdash way in the Silesian Mountains, which was all part of uh, what they called uh, Project Giant or Operation Giant, the Reiser. And they uh, were putting things into the tunnels, such as uh, the leadership of the Third Reich and uh, fighter jets so that they wouldn't be bombed to pieces by the Red Army and, oh, all manner of things. And among the things that people say they put into them are the Nazi bell, which I believe we've discussed previously, the Glocka, and UFO components and all manner of, of fun things. So in addition to there being a Nazi gold train, much like the lost Confederate gold shipment that drives uh, a couple of few great Westerns, you've also got a magical underground tunnel network that people want to believe crazy stuff about. So that sort of magnetizes each other. And I think that, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it amazes me that it's taken this long for the Nazi gold train to break out because of course, 
people have been sort of poking around looking for it ever since, you know, the fifties, I assume. And then certainly once communism went away and you could wander around in your own damn hills without, uh, being, um, uh, arrested and thrown in some sort of dire, uh, Soviet style prison. Although the Polish, some Polish officials at least are accusing them of illegally using ground imaging equipment, which Polish officials want to keep the Nazi gold when they find it. That's yeah. just what's going on there. Cause I, I have a feeling I, I don't, I'm no expert in Polish law, but I, I suspect there is not a uh, prohibition on ground imaging. Well, if they, they, you know, Poland is one of those states that gets its law code from the code Napoleon, which as we all know means it's already legal. Don't even think about it. <laughs> But yeah, so the the Polish army has apparently gone to this the spot near, you know, I am all about the national aspirations of the Polish people, and you know that, but it was called Waldenburg when it was German Silesia, and now it is Walburzich, which uh may still be right. Um but it but you know, our European pronunciation huts are often uh well, they're short of Nazi gold, let's put it that way. They're threadbare. Uh but in the Walburzich area, um, the, they've, they've got their, 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 their army teams out there, uh, quartering the ground. The guys, when they showed up this time with their Nazi gold, uh, story and everyone was like, Oh, another Nazi gold story. Richter and Coper actually gave specific map coordinates, which no one ever does when they come out with the lost Dutchman mine. They're always like, well, I don't know. It was, it was awfully dupe spooky and dark out there. And I was mighty thirsty and had to eat the map and the compass to get away. Third degrees west of the Count St. Germain. That's right. Yeah. This is turn, take a, take a left at Casper Hauser's house and you can't miss it. Um, but yeah, the, uh, these guys, you know, whatever else they've found, they probably found a cave with something in it because by now, if you've gone and gotten the Polish army involved, you know, much like Iraq, you'd, you'd better be right, because otherwise they will take it personally. So uh, if it is Nazi gold, let's back up and sort of get a tiny brief toehold in actual history. This gold would be gold that would be uh, German military payroll, and it would be stuff that's been looted from various parts of Poland that the Russians were about to invade and was being moved deeper into the Reich to pay everyone's boat to Argentina, I assume. And as your trains will do during war, I suspect that a flight of uh, Red uh, Army bombers came overhead and they had to run it into a tunnel. And one involved got blowed up, as well they should have, being a bunch of Nazis. And then the tunnel fell in because that's what bombs will do. And uh, now you have – and that's sort of the secret origin or the assumed origin of the, of the Nazi gold train in its most sort of basic and historical uh, truth if there is, in fact, a Nazi gold train there as opposed to just – a tunnel that caved in because of Russian bombers and a train perhaps even caught in that tunnel, but without the courtesy of having a bunch of Nazi gold on it. Right. It could have uh, a bunch of documents, uh, could, could have uh, now useless paper money, could be full of corpses, uh, could be th full of all manner yes. of ordinary <laughs> train things. But, uh, full of train no parts. Looking for a, <laughs> yeah. a regular yeah, Nazi they, train. I assume that they're, they're, they're still littering Europe. Regular Nazi trains. Uh, Nazi-led trains, as it were, instead of the Nazi gold train. That, of course, what alchemy is all about, is switching your lead trains onto ever more recondite tracks until the Nazi gold train comes out the tunnel at the far end. Um, <laughs> actually, that's not a really terrible analogy for something. I'm not sure what it's an analogy for, but I'm sure it can be used, so someone use it. But as we have discussed previously, what it more likely has, of course, is UFOs or uh, a dangerous gas that turns you into zombies, or at the very least, a lot of uh, uranium that the Nazi atom bomb project had drilled down and was going to make uh, their deadly uh, V4 rockets with, right? I think that's what we've got to assume. Right. 
or or full of corpses that uh, animate as zombies. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That would be uh, your, your obvious move there. Or you'd have your uh, Nazi alien corpses, uh, which either animate as zombies or don't. Oh, and of course, in Night's Black Agents, it would be full of uh, vampires in torpor that you've just uh, woken up. And uh, they are very, very interested after you wake them up in order to uh, get themselves back into the vampire power structure. So you can have a variant Knights Black Agents campaign frame where you wake up all those vampires and they uh, say, great, you're working for us now. Uh, those other vampires who've been chasing you, we have a deal for you. Uh, we will take care of those vampires, but of course you are going to serve us as your Renfields and we're going to uh, go and wipe them out and, and take over because uh, uh, we're we're mad at them. They, you know, they should have come looking for us. <laughs> We've been stuck in this tunnel <laughs> yeah. for a long time now. We have a bone to pick with our previous conspiracy. And guess who gets to be level five of the new one? That's you, ground-penetrating pole. Yes. In, uh, as a terrorist, I guess uh, they could do what is probably, I think, going to happen is if, if there's a train found, the likelihood of it being full of gold is uh, uh, pretty small. It might be full of something mundane. But after that, there are rumors that come go around uh, the town. This is already part of uh, urban legendary, so it's easy enough to hook into people's uh, fears and uh, uh, magnify them into a source of cognitive dissonance, which is the thing that the esoterrorists do. And so there might be a series of uh, murders and increasingly mysterious uh, deaths and haunting events that start uh, affecting nearby towns. And uh, at first, of course, these are being uh, hoaxed by uh, living esoterrorists, but in the way that uh, uh, supernatural forces uh, work in that setting, they then start to become real so that your team team of esoterrorist uh, uh, fighters, the Ordo Veritatis team, has to go in and uh, find the supernatural thing and kill it, and then uh, get people back to believing that uh, nothing weird was found in the train, which is true, so you've got to find a new way to sort of crush that growing new urban legendary. Yeah, you've got what you've got to do with that. I mean, if you're an esoterrorist, uh, not an esoterrorist, an order veritatis guy. You're fighting the esoterrorists, and someone says, "Here's your brief. Uh, they're gonna dig up the Nazi gold train. It's not gonna have monsters on it, but they're gonna make everyone all hopped up about it, and monsters are gonna come out of the hopped upness. So you have to come up with a cover story that will make people more interested, but less unnerved than not gold. Um." What's that? That's that's a that's a long trick because as we've said previously, Nazi gold is one of those super memes that just uh, goes with everything, like uh, being rolled. Um, in a time watch ga- uh, game, you could use this as your opener. That the uh, uh, non-player characters locate the train, they dig down, they rip the train open, and in it are all the player characters. And now it's the player's job to explain how they all wound up in the Nazi gold train and what the conflict is. And then the uh, GM then has to uh, improvise around from that cold opening into the uh, rest of the campaign. In a trail of Cthulhu game, of course, the Nazi gold train uh, actually has various uh, uh, books and documents that the Ananerba had had assembled and had uh, shipped out uh, to their new Ananerba research headquarters in the mountains of Silesia. But, uh, it got bombed. And so this is the equivalent of, and when they, when they find it, it's got, and, you know, two Necronomicons and five copies of Unaus, Brecklick, and Colton and a million billion idols, all kinds of Nazi research documentation about how to cast horrible, horrible souls. And it's just everything. It's just the worst thing in the world. It's literally like dumping a 
wagon load of 38 specials into a gang war to provide this huge quantity of Nazi magical research. And so, you know, the Polish government may try to keep a lid on it, but obviously they're just humans. Uh, the forces of the mythos are all converging on, uh, Polish Silesia to start, um, you know, there's a break in at the, at the warehouse with the big NS, NTSB type warehouse that they would keep the Nazi train in. And then, uh, all things are pilfered and suddenly there's this explosion. And so you've got sort of a CDC style outbreak of mythos lore that just blows up out of this uh, festering wound uh, that had been sealed off in the in the train tunnel and now is blowing out into the modern era. And just because it's a uh, train in a tunnel in Poland doesn't mean that it is a Nazi train. So it could be uh, a train car full of weirdness that is there for some other reason. So it could be, you know, the train car that survived from the events of the conveniently uh, in the public domain Horror Express. Yes. So that could be your uh, way to reawaken that. It could be, as we've suggested, a train out of time that has been uh, uh, displaced. Uh, are there other sort of famous, uh, legendary, uh, weird trains that could uh, we could somehow uh, explain why they would wind up in a uh, tunnel in Poland? Well, uh, there, there's various ghost trains, and I'm morally sure that there's at least one sort of mysteriously vanished train somewhere. And all the better if the mysteriously vanished train vanished in Utah or Nevada. And if there isn't one, go ahead and make one up because it's the kind of thing that would happen. And so, yeah, maybe this is a train from 1888 that has just sort of shown up in in this tunnel in Poland and they open it up and now it's a giant weird Fortean mystery. Like, what is this train doing? Did Hitler build a perfect duplicate of it or Goering? Because Goering was a big fan of the Wild West. Uh, All the Nazis loved uh, the, uh, the old Shatterhand novels. They were crazy for Karl May. So they built replica trains of this one train that had vanished maybe that's true maybe that's not true that's sort of like a a time watch esoteric crossover story right right there's a a nazi time travel experiment that uh, teleported a train and uh, perhaps that train is not even from our reality it could have been from an alternate reality so you know it could be uh, you know the scary version of the kids show the dinosaur train could be full of uh, humanoid pterodactyls who've been stuck in there and again are none too pleased about it um, and also, it, just because you have a cigar-shaped object uh, in your tunnel coming up in your imaging, well, that doesn't mean it's a train, because we... What else is cigar-shaped, Ken? Uh, well, as uh, Freud would remind us, a cigar every now and again. But yes, UFOs are cigar-shaped, of course, as is a submarine. Um, although, I think... Uh, I, you know, I just said submarine, but I think submarine's kind of more fun than UFO. But yes, many UFOs are cigar-shaped, as are uh, Nazi super rockets previously adduced in our earlier discussion and uh also a really big bullet uh it's it, it's an enormous uh rifle shell like just on a huge tail and it be, the first thing people think is oh it's from one of those nazi railroad guns that they used to use to fire off and, and go over the curve of the earth and land on people but no it's just a really giant bullet it's like some sort of bizarre um, uh, Castle of Otranto moment where we're beginning to see enormous pieces of the, of the war that the Nazis, uh, unleashed upping down on Europe, like a Gothic, uh, heritage coming, uh, coming, uh, home to roost, right? Right. And if this was, uh, put in place not during the war, as everyone assumes, but rather, uh, put in place, uh, during the Cold War, uh, what do you think would be in it? Uh, the cold, well, I mean, you know, the, the Soviets have been second best topics for lost atrocities and all the other, uh, panoply of, of adventure novels. All the things we've just said, only 
commie instead of Nazi, obviously. The other thing that a secret train might be, it might have been a secret CIA train that they were running through these old German tunnels underneath Silesia that they were running around to uh, pick up on um uh, uh you know pick up defectors and and tap into soviet communications and things like that there was a genuine project called operation silver in vienna and then operation gold in berlin where they would dig tunnels underneath uh the occupied city and then they would tap into the communications lines and try and uh, read the, the 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 russian communications that way so this is sort of a man from uncle uh adventure ad- avengers sort of spy fi type uh, world where there are secret trains that run back and forth and actually saying adventures, although I meant the proper adventures, it could also be sort of a superhero train, sort of the, you know, a, a not it, maybe this is a, a pulp train, sort of the Polish version of Doc Savage was fighting the Nazis and built himself a, a secret train to run around underneath Europe. But then it's been uh, brought out by, you know, sort of other superhero, uh, superheroic uh, adventurers have have gone in there over time, and it's sort of this locus of uh, Polish superheroism that is now going to go out and rather than poisoning the world like the mythos does, it's going to liberate the world because this is where uh, the, the the glowing meteors uh, fall that give you super energy or something. It could contain a uh, suspended animation pod where a young baby uh, on a planet that was about to be exploded uh, was put on by their parents, and it has arrived on Earth and now... Uh, you, the player characters, open it up, and uh, even though you know, Superman comics exist in this world, but it turns out that they were just a prophecy of this. And so you have a uh, baby who you, who you think is going to grow up to be uh, an ubermensch, uh, and what do you do about that uh, in the... Uh, in the 18 years it's going to take for him to uh, grow up and put on a cape, right? This this is the game where the player characters are Mon Pa Kent. Yeah, or the player characters are at least the sort of um, almost superheroes that sort of in the new DC universe predate Superman, like, you know, they're Sandman, and so they run around with their gas gun, or they have sort of um, not Golden Age powers, because the Golden Age was full of people with awesome powers, but the sort of proto-powers, the sort of um, uh, first two seasons of Arrow-type powers, not the you know oh the the flash is my buddy level of of the next level of the dc universe you're the you're the first batch of supers and you can see the wave coming and again it is about what you have to do it uh to to sort of uh write it and guide it right and the, the aura of krypton may you may have no uh you may it's just sort of quasi ordinary people when you open up that train but the kryptonian aura may start to give you superpowers that develop uh through the course of the uh campaign because uh you know the the device uh the, the sleep pod uh makes sure that the people who are uh it, it determines are the proper guardians for the child uh have the powers to defend him in the uh important 18 years uh needed uh because you know maybe there are other planets that uh, knew about this uh, super child and are going to be coming so that you have to be prepared uh to to guard superman so you become uh, you know, maybe one of you gets a ring that glows green and, uh, another, uh, you know, suddenly becomes really good with, uh, missile weapons and so forth. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's another, uh, possibility is that this is the super baby and the super baby crashed in, in Poland or whenever there's a UFO crash in Poland that people adduce, which never happened, but they like to claim it did because they want the Nazis to have found a UFO and, and who doesn't? Um, but the, uh, but this could be that UFO crash and it does have super baby in it. It doesn't have, 
um, you know, gray aliens, uh, malevolent gray aliens. And the Nazis had tried to build super equipment using the various techniques. But of course, being Nazis, they managed to get about halfway there or do it in the sort of way that nothing could ever accomplish it. Or maybe to take the sting off it, what this is, is it's the Polish resistance that built this. Again, we have our Polish Doc Savage, and he, this lone genius, sort of just worked himself to the bone trying to build these super weapons to save Poland, but he wasn't able to do it in the time allowed. But over all these years in that cave, they've, you know, sort of finished themselves. And so they are uh, they're artifact based powers. They don't sort of waken anything in you, but you have to take them up. They're like regalia and one is a ring and one is a lasso and one is maybe a cloak of invisibility. And, and so they all give you uh, specific powers, but they're inherent in the object that the Polish Doc Savage built or that the aliens, uh, uh, super, their, their AI brought with them as the regalia for the guardian of the super baby. Right. So if the, something happens to your character, the, uh, the replacement player character, then, uh, dons the green ring or picks up the lasso or what have you. Well, I think we've just uh, come up with 30 things uh, that would be more interesting than what they're really going to find if they find <laughs> anything at all. Yeah. Uh, Ken, what would you say are the, the odds are that uh, there's uh, anything actually going to be found? I, I don't think it's at all impossible that there's a train there. I think that it's more likely that they found a tunnel because it's really hard to read metal echoes against stone even if you know what you're doing. And I don't know if these guys may be, you know, Richter and Coper, maybe the frickin' um, uh, Rogers and Hammerstein of finding things with tomography, but I suspect they're guys who want to go look for Nazi gold trains. And so what I suspect it is, is that it's a caved-in train tunnel and that there's maybe a train there and maybe not. And if there is a train there, I think that it is probably full of um, something hideously conventional like you know winter uniforms or um bayonets or something not of uh awesome nazi gold although obviously it would be a real larf if it was full of nazi gold and it gets uh picked up by the polish government uh because that would just drive the nazis bananas in whatever particular sub hell they live in uh well uh speaking of uh hell and heat uh it's time for commercial and after that a hut to which heat is salient The werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by 
biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The crackling of the fat, the clang of the oven door, the aroma of richly roasting food tell us we have once more entered the welcoming autumnal confines of the food hut. And previously in the food hut, we had um, uh, done our own deep tomography to find ways to make vegetables uh, less vegetably and more foody. And today we are continuing that process. Uh, Robin had, uh, put down his, his fork firmly in grilling and I had led us, uh, by my teasing ways into the sauteing portion of the hut. And today we're going to finish sauteing and get to roasting, which is as, uh, fall ticks into winter is, is something that should be consuming all of our minds, except those of our listeners who live in blissful, uh, Mediterranean climes where they don't ever need to roast anything if they don't want to. Or, I suppose, down under, uh, in which they are right. busy uh, chasing kangaroos away from their spring vegetables instead of uh, seeing fall uh, descend upon them. Um, so, our previous uh, vegetable segment was a smash hit, so I thought we would uh, bring it back. And so, let's start about, first of all, the sort of principles of uh, roasting vegetables. So well, I have to admit that I am a, a late convert to the uh, magic of, uh, of roasting. I always uh, kind of uh, figure that it took too long. And in fact, yes, that is the drawback of roasting is it takes a little while. So uh, you've got to do some prep time at the beginning and then you uh, have to sit down and wait as the delicious smells waft over you for, uh, you know, perhaps about uh, 50 minutes or so. But that just means you can uh, sit down with your loved ones and chat or enjoy a little bit of aperitif as you wait, or uh, perhaps even sit down and, uh, you know, finish some more of the novel that you're working on or design some monsters or whatever. Uh, but anyway, the great thing about uh, roasting is it really uh, performs a chemical transformation on a lot of the vegetables that you're working with. It enables their uh, flavors to uh, kind of mingle in the pan, and some things become really radically uh, different uh, when roasted. For example, we were talking about Brussels sprouts in the grilling segment, but really the... Uh, I think the ideal place to make a Brussels sprout, which many people think of as a loathsome and frightening, into the most delicious thing it can possibly be is to uh, uh, put it in the roast pan. Uh, again, I think you probably want to uh, blanch it a little bit before you put it in, so it'll be uh, kind of nice and evenly cooked. Uh, I always, uh, or quite frequently, will coat it in a flavoring agent like some biryani paste. Um, another thing that really, uh, the thing that transforms even more when you roast it, though, is your garlic clove. Mm. Uh, roasted garlic uh, really becomes a new, amazing uh, thing. It takes on a sweeter, caramelized quality, becomes uh, nice and uh, soft, and you can either uh, roast entire cloves of garlic. What you do is you just cut off the top drizzle a little olive oil into it, and then wrap it in foil. You don't even necessarily put it in anything other than the foil and put it on the oven rack. But you can also strip the cloves out of their uh, papery wrapping and just uh, fling them in amongst the other vegetables yeah, that, you're, yeah, that you're roasting, and they will uh, come out with that uh, wonderful, amazing uh, texture and, uh, and flavor. So even if you find uh, garlic prepared in other ways a little too sharp, you really should at least give roast garlic uh, uh, one shot. And it's something that you can do. Uh, garlic is cheap. 
but it tastes amazing and it uh, really brings up uh, whatever you're doing a, a couple of notches. And although this is not a, a meat segment of the food hut, uh, roasting garlic uh, with a meat that has got uh, not a gigantous amount of flavor to it, or even sometimes that does. You can roast garlic with roast pork or with roast beef as well. Um, but you roast a garlic with chicken, it's a whole different world of garlic, and it's a whole different world of chicken. It is. It has a huge thing. The thing that uh, your roasting garlic comment reminds me is the other good thing about roasting is that it fills the house with delicious smells. And delicious smells, first of all, they are a great advertisement for the fact that you cooked and so, therefore, your significant other, A, has to do dishes, and B, owes you one. <laughs> but also... Yeah, yeah. As, as you're counting brownie points. Yes, the, but also, you, hey, every brownie point helps, my friend. Also, filling the house with delicious smells makes the food better because it gets all of your digestion sort of teed up, right? It it makes It sets you up to enjoy the food, and it sets you up to be able to enjoy the food at sort of an optimal chemical point because... All of your sort of little savanna reflexes are going, I smell delicious prey. I smell delicious food going around. Let's go all go to the food. And your, and, and your, you know, little embolisms are embling and your juices are juicing and you're getting ready to eat. Also, you're getting psychologically ready to eat because you smell delicious food. You're in a, a better mood because you smell delicious food. You get hunger and hunger, as we all know, is the third best spice after garlic and, uh, cumin. And so therefore, uh, the, the smell that roasting causes, which is a different and better smell than virtually anything, is also an important component of the roasting process. And it's part of why you shouldn't mind too much if roasting takes a little bit longer. But if you roast your vegetables at a proper temperature, which is to say closer to 400 than 300, it won't take that long anyway because vegetables are, you know, kind of small and get roasted pretty rapidly. Potatoes take a while, but uh, carrots don't take that long. Broccoli obviously doesn't take super long at all to roast. Uh, garlic doesn't take that long. So there's lots of things you can roast in well under an hour. It's not like you've, you know, killed the whole evening uh, by roasting. You just start about half an hour, 40 minutes early, and you're, and you're good to go. Right. Um, and there are things that you will want to introduce uh, later that will just get cooked to a crisp if you put them in for the whole length of time. Uh, and that would be uh, spinach and chard and your other sort of yeah. uh, uh, green leafy vegetables. Um, and uh, you should put a, a herb in your uh, roast a vegetable mix. Uh, if you're using a fresh herb, you want to, again, uh, introduce that fairly late in the process, unless it is something really robust like a rosemary stock, in which case you can uh, put that in in the beginning. But I guess we should just uh, back up just a step. And one, one of the other great things about a roast pan full of vegetables is that you don't have to adhere to any given recipe. You can just head on down to your uh, local source of produce and see what looks good. And in the fall, uh, that's going to involve a lot of uh, root vegetables, your uh, yams, your uh, parsnips, uh, as well as the aforementioned uh, carrots and uh, and potatoes. Potatoes, I would also blanch a bit because they uh, take a while. Um, and I want to second your uh, tip that a lot of recipes give you a too low uh, temperature that the sort of uh, thought on how long it takes to roast things has kind of evolved over the years and both with meat and with vegetables that actually you want to uh, cook them at a higher temperature for not quite as long a period as older recipes will tell you to do. Um, so the, but the basic ingredients 
that you want to put in any roast are. You want to make sure that there is some sort of acid. So that can be uh, lemon juice. Our old friend lemon. Our old friend lemon. Uh, can be balsamic vinegar, or it can just be some uh, tomatoes that you uh, uh, chop up and put on there. Uh, the tomatillo is no longer my personal uh, digestive friend, but if it is uh, your digestive friend, uh, a few of those will go a long way because they're, they're very acidic. But anyway, you... Uh, and roasted tomatillos are super good, too. You can also uh, add beans to a uh, collection of uh, roasted vegetables. So you can add a... Uh, By beans, we mean green beans, not canned actually, beans. canned beans as well. Um, yeah, You sure. can? You, are you intrigued me, sir, with your crazy talk? Uh, you can put in uh, lentils or chickpeas. Chickpeas are really great when you roast them. Or, uh, or yeah. even like uh, uh, navy beans. Well, there you go. Learn something new every day. And, and that it would be something it would do if you don't have a lot of the root vegetables on hand because they are either starches or pseudo starches and you don't want it to be predominantly uh, starchy. No, that's not the that You've wasted the fun of roasting if you've done that, I think. Except, obviously, roasting potatoes, which is just by itself fun. Yes. Um, and uh, you also might want to look into some sort of a flavored oil if you're, or a, a curry paste or another thing that you can uh, uh, that is really great is if you uh, roast... Uh, your uh, particularly like uh, uh, sweet potatoes and uh, uh, say red peppers and onions. If you uh, roast them in beer, uh, you uh, that uh, imparts a really a lovely flavor to them. Um, also, uh, white wine is a, a great uh, agent to uh, cook additional uh, flavor into. The white your, wine uh, is good because it. Uh, if you get a dry white wine, it will have some of the acidic quality, and then you don't have to go to the lemon if you don't want. Yeah, exactly. That uh, and and beer too, and is is acidic as well. So yeah. that would take the the role of your uh, acid. Um, and so, is there any other uh, uh, vegetable we've left out, or any kind of uh, technique? It's actually, you know, the, the other great thing about it is that although it takes a little while, it's pretty simple, and you it's hard to mess up if you yeah. uh, keep checking in on it. Um, if you uh, you might want to sort of get a feel for how fast your oven is, and uh, you can either decide that you want that nice sort of uh, uh, kind of burnt edge to things and take the lid off partway through the roasting process or uh, uh, leave it on in order to not have anything uh, browned. And that's sort of a matter of taste. I kind of like it when uh, particularly the uh, the peppers or the uh, uh, potatoes brown a bit. The uh, the other thing that you uh, want to remember to do is make sure that as, as much as you can, that all of your roasted vegetable bits uh, are the same rough size. Not, you know, you don't have to go under the micrometer, but if you're roasting a bunch of things, try and make sure that most of them are all roughly the same size, so they'll roast at roughly the same time, or else some of your things will be all caramelized and crispy as Robin is talking, while other things are still sitting there not super roasted and tasty yet. So chop them up to make them roughly the same. Again, you don't have to go bananas with it, but uh, making sure that they're basically the same uh, sorts of surface area will go a long way to evening out the variations in the kind of, of, of results that you get. And then I say, uh, by and large, you should put some kind of oil on your roasted vegetables just because that, again, adds flavor. We talked previously about how fat is yep. flavor. And so uh, it doesn't have to be a ton, just a little bit of uh, olive oil, you know, a couple of um, uh, uh, tablespoons, if you if you want, for the whole pan will be plenty of olive oil. And then... Uh, I've got, I've gotten good results sometimes rather than you doing it in a roasting pan or a casserole dish, doing it 
in like a big flat pan, like you're making French fries. So if you get like a baking sheet, if it's, as long as it's got a rim so that the oil won't run off and, and, and screw up your oven, um, you can spread out your veggies there. You can get more of them onto the baking sheet. You can see, you know, what needs more oil or what needs, you know, little bits of, of dry rub. Another thing you can do, obviously, is, is put a uh, spice rub if you're making parsnips or, um, uh, things like that. Uh, I, people that roast cauliflower, I assume that they put dry rub on it because otherwise it's still cauliflower at the other end of the, of the spectrum, but you could put a, a spice, uh, or an herb into the, into the mix, uh, with the oil and then everything's got kind of a, uh, it's, it's, uh, the, the flavors of the, of the rub are going into the vegetable, the flavors of the vegetable going on with the rub. I think that that's a really good thing. If you do it on a, on a cookie sheet, you can see, where all the vegetables are and, and if anything needs a little extra attention or, or needs to be, f- and then at the point when you've opened up the oven to flip everything over so it doesn't burn on one side, you can make sure that everything got flipped over, right? As opposed to sort of giving it two really hard shakes and hoping, which is what you kind of have to do if you're doing things in a roasting pan. Other magical uh, ingredients, the leek uh, is never as good as when you uh, roast it. <laughs> um, mushrooms yeah. are uh, uh, delicious uh, when roasted and they uh, lend their mushroomy juice to everything else. And so eggplant. Your... eggplant is super great when you roast it. Um, if, if you like eggplant, I bet that is Even, the best I mean, again, that. eggplant is one of those things that once you roast it, you have suddenly created a vastly better vegetable, and you shake your fist at uh, the creator and say, if it had begun this way, I would have eaten more of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'll give it one more and, chance. And the but, creator says, that's why I gave you fire, you, you loser. But we have forgotten a, a magic weapon, which is cheese. Mm. Uh, if you uh, add either just some... Uh, a, Already grated Parmesan cheese will uh, will do the trick, but even better if you grate uh, some uh, lovely groovy uh, cheese that goes well on vegetables to make an au gratin. That will also answering the mystical question: Does Canada have a Midwest? <laughs> uh, well, uh, our Midwest is sort of Quebec. That's where the, our our best cheeses come from. That's true. Uh, but Quebec is where they just drink gravy, right? Well, they they. Uh, I don't know if you put it on French fries with cheese. Is that drinking? No, no, that's that's serving it correctly. Yes, yes. Uh, And uh, well, they have very, very strong. uh, They have pecan pie without the pecans in in Quebec, Robin. It's just it's just syrup pie. That's what they have in Quebec. Uh, Well, I think now that we're talking about the uh, various uh, uh, delicious and perhaps hazardous uh, foods of uh, Quebec, we have uh, digressed enough that we can consider this segment. Uh, well roasted and the uh, we'll just uh, leave it out to uh, smell it for a bit as we complete our last segment but first a word from one of our sponsors It's not easy teaching in America's second-worst school district and being a wizard on the side. But Nathan Colwicky thought he had it covered. Until he received news of the worst kind. Inoperable cancer. He'll be dead before the start of the next school year. Now he will have to scour time and unheard-of dimensions to find a magical cure to save himself. But can he discover an occult cure before the cancer kills him? And what will he be willing to do to find it? Find out in Terminal Magics, a novel by Plot Points Impresario Ben Riggs. Terminal Magics is currently funding on Inkshares.com, a website which is half Kickstarter, half publishing house. Go to Inkshares.com and search Terminal Magics to hear an audiobook of the first chapter. Ben will also be posting a chapter a week for your reading pleasure. 
back the book and a beautiful physical copy of the novel will be delivered to your door if the book funds. But Ben Riggs is sweetening the deal for the fine audience of Cartus. If the book funds with 1,000 backers, he'll produce an abridged audiobook of the novel and unleash it upon the world for free. Tell your friends, neighbors, investigators, players, and favorite local werewolves. Go to Inkshares.com and search Terminal Magics. That's Inkshares.com and search Terminal Magics. Don't wait, because this campaign will be over faster than you can say, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan! The alien big cat prowling the moor, the gray alien uh, peering in at us uh, through the window, and the uh, plesiosaur demanding more herring tell us we've once more entered that most mysterious construction on the plains on which the podcast is recorded. That, of course, would be the Elliptony Hut. And in this case, speaking of food and roasting, we've been forced to uh, uh, cook up some emergency brisket because we seem to have a lot of mysteriously dead cattle lying around. We're going to talk about cattle mutilations. Uh, Ken, uh, ever since this kind of entered the corpus of uh, UFO lore, it has been uh, held a tenacious hold on the imaginations of uh, many. I know at least one UFO believer who is very, very invested in uh, cattle mutilations being a real thing. When did this first enter the bloodstream of UFO lore, and how did it happen? It entered the bloodstream, if you will, of ufology via a mutilated horse, not a cow, uh, named Snippy, who was a, uh, it was actually named Lady. Snippy was a dis, was a disrespectful name given to the, the horse later. Um, <laughs> so th- this horse had it coming is what you're suggesting. I, 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 I'm not suggesting that the, the later people have suggested that I'm saying that Lady, the horse uh, l- lived and died better than this, but, uh, she did die in and around the San Luis Valley, uh, which runs up through, uh, New Mexico, which is the land of UFO enchantment and into Colorado where, uh, Snippy was found. And the, uh, uh, owner of the horse um, thought that the cuts found on her dead horse looked weirdly precise and that there was no blood at the scene and possibly a medicinal odor could be smelled in the air. And I've been in the great American West and plenty of times there's a medicinal odor in the air because there are plants that grow up in the, in the, in the desert. And after a, a storm or a, or a bad wind, even you get that really strong doctor's office waiting room smell because that's what the plant smells like. And I assume it's camphor or some derivative of it because that's what they use in doctor's offices. But yes, leaving aside the specifics of that particular case uh this particular story sort of got a big play because it was the 60s and people were looking at you know all manner of crazy things going on uh, everyone was a little um uh jazzed up about mutilation stories because obviously the uh manson cult was was in the news uh just like i think the year before that and so there was all sort of is it satanists what's going on and eventually uh more and more people said oh i've got a, a mutilated cow over or by the north 40 and i've got some dead horses and such and goats and whatever and it became a bigger and bigger deal when ufologists sort of discovered the case uh later on that year and made a big whoopty dope and all of the uh, Project Blue Book came out to look and all of the UFO com- uh, community people came out to look and that sets it, you know, that sort of sets the cat amongst the kittens, if you will. So the uh, elements that have to be in place for a cattle mutilation uh, to uh, allegedly seem mysterious are uh, basically that they're uh, 
Is the medicinal smell, smell still part of the mythology, or is that something that sort of uh, drifted away? Either medicinal smell or a medicinal uh, residue sometimes. Sometimes people say that they've looked at the, at, the, at the cows and they look like they've been stained with iodine or whatever. Uh, they, they sort of um, uh, report uh, things that seem to be involved with deliberate wounding or surgery as opposed to things that would be involved with, say, uh, falling over from any of the myriad ills that cows are heir to and uh, splitting open while you uh, bloat in the sun, which is, of course, what actually happens in virtually all of these cases. Right. So there's the uh, assertion by believers that these cuts, they uh, as they uh, characterize them, that you see in the cows could uh, sometimes not be uh, made by anything other than a knife or even a laser because they are too mysteriously straight. Uh, but in fact, there are certain connective tissues that uh, go early when a, uh, a cow uh, bloats and dies in the sun. And uh, guess what? They're straight. <laughs> and when they're gone, yeah. it looks like there's a mysteriously uh, straight cut. Um, and to what extent do you uh, imagine, because there's always a two-pronged thing with uh, elliptony reports, which is uh, sometimes you're faced with the question of explaining uh, what these different elements involved in a weird case could be. And sometimes you're trying to explain away things that, in fact, are just flat out misreported to begin with. Because So how many uh, cases would you say probably that people find something and it actually uh, fits the explicable but weird seeming if you don't know much about how cows decompose uh, qualities and how much are just additional embellishments that people are, are adding to the reports? Well, I'm glad you asked me that because... Possibly the best title in the entire corpus of elliptony is of a book called Mute Evidence by a guy named Daniel Kagan and another guy named Ian Summers. And they went out and they looked at the whole shebang of cattle mutilation. And they concluded that, th and this is very esoterrorist worthy, that virtually all of the sort of reports come in the wake of what you, what, what they call themselves mutologists, these cattle mutilation, uh, Specialists would be one term. Hysterics might be another promoters. term. Promoters would be a third term. I think promoters might be the nice neutral term because it's got that sort of Barnum-esque American hustle feel to it. But there's a woman named uh, Linda Moulton Howe who is sort of at the center of uh, the uh, Venn diagram where cattle mutilations and UFOs cross over. And they point a very accusing finger at her and the sort of community that she has accreted around her that deliberately or uh, confabulatorily uh, misrepresent the cases uh, that do exist and just make stuff up and talk nonsense and create a ongoing myth pattern into which people who ha have a mind to can fit the broadly contradictory sorts of evidence that you see at any uh, uh, scene. And if you know anything about eyewitness testimony, you know that eyewitnesses uh, don't know what they saw or can't repeat it or don't remember it or would rather remember a better story later. And this has been proven time and time and time and time again in every kind of criminological research, in every kind of cognitive psychological research. Eyewitnesses, unless they are literally filming and photographing things as they happen, will just get everything wrong later on. And so... If you're out in the desert and you're wandering around and maybe you're from a big city where you've been in part of your UFO club and you're not really sure what you're seeing, you may come back to Roswell, New Mexico or Denver or wherever and firmly believe that there was a medicinal smell and there were blue lines and that the cow was found at exactly the center of the vertex of the, um, uh, of the, of the two uh, crop circle diagrams that you've traced. 
And in fact, none of that happened that you just sort of have added these stories because they fit into the story that you held in your head at the time. And I think that mute evidence makes a super strong case for a lot of it being confabulation or, uh, sort of the natural drift of oral testimony to point at a narrative as opposed to point to the actual tumbledy facts on the ground. And I think that another one of the strongest pieces of evidence is that in many jurisdictions, um, you do not get uh, paid off on your cattle insurance if an uh, cattle just topples over and kills itself like a stupid cow, because obviously if you paid off on every case of that, you'd never be able to stay in the cattle insurance right. business. And it's the, the cow's annoying way of, of wanting a natural death. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and so uh, the insurance does cover vandalism, right? If some, you know, jerk comes by and shoots your cow, then that would be covered. And an alien jerk coming by and sawing up your cow or something you can credibly churn up the waters enough that it doesn't look like the cow just sort of toppled over and was split open by blow blow flies. And again, people have experimented. They've left cows and horses out in the desert, filmed them continuously. Turns out they get beautiful straight surgical lines in them. That's just what happens. Um, but the, uh, but, but if you are in a jurisdiction where your insurance will let you claim a mysterious death as a vandal death, it turns out that's where cattle mutilations happen. And so the aliens are very carefully paying attention to our county and state jurisdictional lines. So they're lines. just running an insurance scam. And yeah, the aliens are actually in it with, um, uh, with, uh, one of the bad guys from Rockford Files episode, oh. I suppose. And so they're, they're flying around just sort of messing with, um, uh, uh, you know, farmers mutual credit or somebody. Well, cause I was going to say that, uh, one of the odd things about this as being part of UFO belief is that quite often the same people who believe that the government is three months from now, and it's always three months from now, uh, going to announce alien contact and everything is going to change. Also believe in cattle mutilations. And it's like, if the, you know, aliens have been in contact with, uh, human governments for uh, decades of preparation and have all this political pull, why are they also uh, knocking off random cows in Wyoming? And the answer is that's how they're picking up a little scratch on the side is that they're, you know, they're in with uh, the, the cattle industry, which they probably, they probably met with Archer Daniels Midland uh, when yes. Gerald Ford introduced them to, at, at some sort of party. So now it makes total yes. sense to once, me. Yeah. Once you've brought Archer Daniels Midland into it, now you get to the satanic <laughs> <Yeah>. explanation. <laughs> Which is that the devil wants to mutilate cows as a, um, uh, as the uh, visual example of him unleashing the various seals of revelation and coming out to rule the world through Gregory Peck or somebody. And that that is what's going on. And it's all the, the devil doing it. And I suspect that again, as I say, people play into these narratives that if you are a bored teenager, in one of these rural communities. And God knows I was a bored teenager in a perfectly nice suburban community. And the guy who owns the cows is a jerk because he thinks you're a layabout teen who does nothing but, but drink beer and, and not work. Uh, maybe it would be fun to go and take his cow and mutilate it. And then you would do it in the way that you have read, heard, watched on late night cable, seen on YouTube, that cows get mutilated by aliens. And so you will have the 
tendency of the human prankster or human vandal to commit a cattle mutilation to play into the pre-existing narrative, and that will then reinforce the narrative in much the same way that after Spielberg makes a movie about gray aliens, everyone starts seeing gray aliens and stops seeing Nordic aliens. Right, and presumably there may be a, a few edge cases where there is somebody who's a uh, junior murderous uh, psychopath in training who is... Uh, uh, branching out to uh, cows and horses because that's what's available to him rather than the usual sort of uh, cats and dogs that they uh, tend to practice killing on. I do want to go back and and, uh, uh, add another element to why weird stories get confabulated in addition to the unreliability of witnesses is that you then add another layer of the local reporter uh, reporting the story in order to make it seem interesting. And this goes way beyond cattle mutilations. Yeah, and- it, that's the first you the the great airship sightings in the 1890s were done by the, uh, the sort of local reporters drove virtually all of those sightings. Right. And uh, it, you see it in uh, Bigfoot lore. You see it in regular UFOs. You see it in possession cases where a lot of the uh, original claims uh, surrounding the case turn out you know, not to be true, but they got into the newspapers earlier and that's how they uh, got into the case. So is there an interesting way to uh, work cattle mutilations into a game or is it just to uh, penny ante an activity for uh, player characters to uh, to bother with? Like I say, I think that it makes great spoor. I think it's a good way to sort of signal that bad stuff is happening, that uh, there's maybe aliens, maybe Satanists, maybe it's almost like a supernatural sign. It's like when all the ravens, you know, flock up off the trees at the beginning of the horror film or the or the or the uh, dogs back away, that kind of thing. The, the cows turning up mutilated, the horses turning up mutilated is a great way to signal that uh, bad doings is afoot here in the great American West. And uh, I should also mention uh, that there is the sort of story that black helicopters are flying around mutilating more cows to cover up the otherwise very clear traces of what the aliens are doing. So that all of the cases that don't quite fit the Orthodox cases are being done by black helicopter guys out of the secret UN uh, training camps in uh, Arizona or wherever the secret UN training camps are. So they're killing and mutilating cattle in ways that then can be debunked as not having been mutilated. In exactly. order to disguise the fact that, that aliens uh, are surgically mutilating cows to get um, whatever, you know, sort of delicious cow uh, thyroid that they need to fuel their starcraft or, you know, the, well, the, the, when the you part start that your always chain of logic breaks with the down for end. me <laughs> is, is how does exactly how many cow parts does an alien need and why don't they need the part of the cow that would not naturally decompose in the first 24 to 48 hours or be taken away by predators? Why do the aliens have the same exact parts of the cow that vultures are also interested in? What's that story all about? Uh, well, you know, they just, uh, they just really like soft tissue. It's, it goes in an alien pudding. Yeah. The aliens are coyotes. That's what I've discovered just now. They're not gray aliens. They're coyotes. The coyotes are behind it. It's all coyotes all the way down. Everything is coyotes. Previously, we talked about everything was demons. Nope. Everything is coyotes. Uh, well, that uh, probably also explains why raccoons can get into any garbage bin. They have uh, telekinetic technology. They're coyotes wearing masks. There you go. Um, well, uh, now that we've explained this in important, we've blown the lid off of cattle mutilations. Uh, I think we can uh, declare victory and uh, uh, declare yet another podcast successfully concluded. 
stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Phoenix. Terminal Magics. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep our balsamic levels high by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such strong yet pacific patrons as Manfred Gabriel. Stay tuned as we prepare our upcoming Patreon. Right now, I'm looking into t-shirts. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Hite. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>